1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Anjan Chakravarti, a Foundation Chair and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Miami. His new book, Scientific Ontology, Integrating Naturalized Metaphysics and Voluntarist Epistemology, is just out from Oxford University Press. A scientific ontology is a view about what a scientific theory says exists. Long-standing philosophical debate on this issue divides into two broad camps, anti-realists who think scientific theories are committed to the existence only of those things that can be observed, and realists who hold that these theories are also committed to unobservables, such as some atomic particles. In his new book, Chakravarti argues that the this debate is philosophically indefeasible because the views rest on different background epistemic stances or bundles of attitudes that generate different assessments of the epistemic risk attached to scientific claims. Chakavarti elaborates his view that scientific ontology always includes an a priori metaphysical element, and that epistemic stances are voluntarily adopted. He also considers the implications of his account regarding worries about whether ontological claims are inevitably perspectival, and about the rationality of opposing stances and the ontologies that they ground. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, Hello, Anjan. Are you there? I'm here, Kerry. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you
0: very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Um I'm really excited to be talking about your new book Scientific Ontology. Um and it's a it, there's a lot of moving pieces here um but I think they fit together in a very interesting and uh informative and and provocative sort of a way. Um and I hope we will get to at least the major elements of it. But before we get into start getting into the book, uh I always like to start with a question about about you, the author. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, you, how you came to philosophy and how you came to write this particular book. Sure.
0: Well, uh, how did I come to philosophy? I suppose I was one of those kids that really uh, loved everything. So when it came to university and trying to decide what I was going to do, it was uh, torturous. Really, I loved the sciences. I loved the humanities. Uh, and the prospect of having to choose one or the other was uh, something I really didn't relish. Uh, But then I realized that if I plan things in the right sort of way, I might be able to have my cake and eat it too. So I actually specialized in uh, biophysics. That meant that I could study a lot of physics and a lot of math and a lot of biology. Uh, And then towards the latter stages of that degree, it became uh, much more interdisciplinary, which was fun. Uh, But I also took a bunch of extra courses on the side and and did a major in philosophy as well. And then, of course, like so many of us in the philosophy of science, I discovered that there was such a thing. And I hadn't actually known that when I came into it. You know, a lot of us, certainly in North America, don't learn any philosophy at all uh, before we get to university. And I really hadn't known what it was. I liked the sound of it. I liked the idea of thinking deeply about very foundational, important, very basic questions, uh, hopefully with the reward of some wisdom at the end of it. And so I knew that I was interested, uh, but it was really when I discovered that there was such a thing as the philosophy of science that I really uh, got going and I was really captivated. I think a lot of my interests in philosophy were very central. I was interested in uh, questions of epistemology. Uh, and I was interested in questions of metaphysics. And when I discovered the philosophy of science, I realized that a lot of general philosophy of science is just the metaphysics and epistemology of the sciences. I mean, even when we do work, uh, in connection with specialized uh, topic areas in the sciences, we're often just doing the epistemology and metaphysics of those particular theories or models or what have you. So, uh, my interest in philosophy and philosophy of science uh, was sort of an outgrowth of me not wanting to give up anything. Uh, but my work on this book, in particular, is really an outgrowth of, I suppose, what brought me to the the field in the first place. I mean, the book really is uh, a book in the philosophy of science uh, because it's all about scientific ontology and how we make ontological commitments in connection with scientific investigations. But as uh, you intimated already, uh, it's really far-reaching in the sense that it deals with a lot of issues in uh, epistemology and metaphysics, because I see the, the very nature of scientific ontology, the nature of making those commitments in terms of uh, some pretty fundamental commitments that we have to make with respect to how we acquire knowledge and what we take that knowledge to be of. And so... In some ways, this book is a kind of natural uh, point that I was destined to reach, having entered the field the way I did. I also came to it in part because a lot of my earlier work uh, was on the question of scientific realism, which is the idea that, uh, at least to a first approximation, that our best scientific theories are telling us something uh, true, correct, or hopefully close to the truth with respect to their subject matter. Uh, Not just things that we can uh, observe, but things that may be too far away in space and time or too small or uh, unfolding over too lengthy a period for us to actually observe. But nevertheless, these theories might be on the right track with respect to the way they describe these things. And it occurred to me that while early debates about realism were very coarse, they would talk about whether we should believe in the truth of theories or not, Uh, a lot of more sophisticated versions of realism that had cropped up in the last few decades, really to counter some excellent skeptical worries about the idea, were much more fine-grained, and they involved interesting metaphysical commitments. If you're an entity realist or a structural realist, or I argued for a view that I called semi-realism, you end up discriminating The kinds of things that we think the sciences can tell us about the world from things that we might want to suspend belief about in terms of uh, some metaphysically interesting and non trivial notions. And so it was really in exploring this and discovering the idea that um, something that has come to the fore, I think, in the last uh, decade or two of philosophy, the idea of the metaphysics of science, uh, that I really. Um, wanted to explore what it might mean to do the metaphysics of science, because there are a lot of disagreements in the literature about what that could be, what its proper bounds are. Uh, there's a lot of antipathy still uh, between uh, science and philosophy of science on the one hand, and certain conceptions of metaphysics on the other. And this led me to want to think about how, if we're going to think about these uh, issues in metaphysics in a way that's connected to the sciences, um, how might we do that? How might we articulate that kind of project in a way that's compelling?
1: Uh, very good. Well, that that um, that does explain, you know, sort of the 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 integra- certainly the integrative um aspect of the book that kind of goes through everything between the epistemology and the metaphysics and then the background in science um you've touched on a number of of different uh issues that that i hope we will get a chance to talk about um obviously this what you talked about with you mentioned you know realism and that distinction between you know realism anti-realism broadly speaking um is a is a thread throughout the book obviously um uh, but you also mentioned before we before we get to the actual pieces that you that you put together to defend your view, um, you mentioned about certain debates that are going on now about conceptions of metaphysics, and this and you you actually sort of begin the book um, addressing this this idea of you know what is. Uh, basically, what is the relationship maybe between um, a naturalistic and a non-naturalistic metaphysics uh, or a scientific metaphysics as opposed to something else? Could you, could you um, tell us a bit about this, um, this distinction and debate? Because, I mean, the subtitle of the book is Integrating Naturalized Metaphysics. So, give us a sense
0: of what that is. Absolutely, yeah. The the antipathy that I mentioned uh, just a moment ago uh, between uh, thinking about science on the one hand and thinking about metaphysics on the other is something that I think is uh, it's very deeply entrenched in the background of uh, not just philosophy, but the way in which a lot of us were trained. Right? I mean, if you think about the philosophy of science, uh, it came into being at least as a self-aware discipline. I mean, there's been philosophy of science since ancient times, but as a self-aware discipline, you know, it came into being in the late 19th and early 20th centuries with logical empiricism, right? A view that as part of its kind of uh, founding mandate was opposed to metaphysics. And so I think that there's a, a kind of deeply entrenched sense that, uh, an inquiry into the world that's properly described as metaphysical and an inquiry into the world that's properly described as scientific, the sort of thing that philosophers of science would be interested in understanding and analyzing. But those two things must be very different. And uh, if you're a big fan of one, that that might make you uh, suspicious or at least uh, uh, wary of the other kind of intruding on uh, your turf. And I think that in part because of some of the things I I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, the idea that realism, as it's become a more refined uh, set of positions with respect to understanding how we should interpret our best scientific theories, seems to involve certain metaphysical commitments. And because of the explosion of work in what we would call these days, the metaphysics of science, I think that um, a lot of... uh, Would it be rude to describe it as lip service? I think a lot of casual reference has been made to the idea that, look, it's okay to do metaphysics, even if you're interested in the sciences. It's just that we have to do it in the right sort of way, right? And so the right sort of way has been labeled uh, naturalized metaphysics, scientific metaphysics. Right? The idea that people who take science seriously can engage with a kind of metaphysical inquiry into uh, the nature of the world or parts of it, um, so long as it's connected in the right sort of way to the sciences. And so, I mean, you're right to put your finger on this right at the beginning. I mean, that's the $64,000 question. What is that, right? I mean, what is naturalized metaphysics or what is scientific metaphysics? And part of the motivation for the book was... The fact that I I saw myself involved in what was really a groundswell of interest, I think, in philosophy and among scientists as well in thinking about some of these questions. And yet, I wasn't really satisfied that uh, there had been a very clear or compelling articulation of what uh, scientific metaphysics or naturalized metaphysics might be. There are a lot of descriptions. So people will say things like, well, it's metaphysics that's uh, appropriately grounded in scientific knowledge, or it's metaphysics that is constrained by what the sciences are telling us, or it's metaphysics that's continuous with our best science. Uh, but one of the claims that I make in the book is that all of these are Uh, suggestive, but they're metaphors, right? When we talk about grounding or constraint or continuity here, they're really just metaphors. And we need to understand better what these metaphors mean if we're going to have a clear and well-articulated sense of what naturalized metaphysics could be. So one of the goals of the book is to actually try to do that. And I do it in terms of um, spelling out what I think all of these people who are interested in these projects of naturalized or scientific metaphysics and the metaphysics of science uh, share. And uh, that is what I label in the book, the norm of naturalized metaphysics. And it's basically just the idea that, you know, metaphysics is appropriately connected to the sciences, right? It's a form of inquiry of that sort um, when it is uh, properly delimited uh, by um, inferences that are sufficiently informed by or sensitive to empirical investigation, the empirical investigations of the science in particular, um, so that this way informed or sufficiently sensitive, they can provide knowledge um, of the world. And then the question becomes, so what does it mean to be sufficiently well-informed or sufficiently sensitive to Mm -hmm. scientific empirical investigation? And what I try to do in the book is to actually... Spell out what that might mean
1: good good that's that, that's a um, excellent way to kind of get into some of the more nitty gritty questions i guess um, because um, uh, you know I, I, I guess one of the one of the main claims is that you know wherever one stands in terms of scientific ontology and and you know the the basic camps here are realist versus anti-realist in some way or deflationary as you also call them um all of these ontologies wherever you stand in terms of your meta your scientific ontology um they do they presuppose um what you call metaphysical inferences um, and these are you know in some way a priori, which which I think we need to talk about. Um, and that in turn, these metaphysical inferences are uh, you know grounded in or explained by another important concept that you introduce, which is that of an epistemic stance. okay so. Um, Uh, Maybe you can say a bit about uh, what a metaphysical inference is in your, you know, because it's, it is a a technical term um, as, as you're using it. Um, uh, What what metaphysical inferences are um, and, you know, how they are, how they are integrated in or or part of uh, what one claims in terms of, Uh, one's scientific ontology?
0: Sure. So, uh, you know, first of all, what is metaphysics? I mean, that is a a good place to start, in part because, uh, you know, whenever uh, you ask uh, a class of students what metaphysics is, or for that matter, ask colleagues what metaphysics is, uh, the answers you're bound to get tend to be either one of two things. I mean, one... uh, kind of very broad, very vague. Well, it's an inquiry into, uh, you know, first principles, the very most basic questions uh, of existence. Um, That leaves a lot to be filled in. Or if you were to look, for example, at the Stanford Encyclopedia article on metaphysics, uh, it actually starts, I think, uh, perhaps correctly and certainly charmingly by saying, you know, I'm not sure what metaphysics is, but here's a list of things that are traditionally held to comprise the philosophical domain of inquiry that we call metaphysics. Um, and so you know, that uh, extensionally uh, identifying what metaphysics is, is, is probably just a good a, a way of doing it as any. But uh, the way I think about metaphysics in the book is, I think, uh, a common way of understanding it. It's certainly uh, a philosophical form of inquiry into the nature of the world, that yes, it's concerned with first principles, with very basic questions of what exists, what kinds of things exist, and what those things are like, what their essences are, or their natures are. Uh, and um, you know the, very, the sorts of inquiries that we associate with the, the field of ontology. Um, And what's interesting or distinctive about an inquiry into these questions in metaphysics is that it's uh, an inquiry that is significantly a priori or at least has a significantly a priori dimension in that. And what I mean by this is that it doesn't rely on empirical considerations um, to come to the sorts of conclusions it does in answer to those questions. So um, it relies Uh, very straightforwardly, on non-empirical considerations, um, assessments of uh, various kinds of explanatory virtues of different theories. If you're trying to decide at the most uh, fundamental level what kinds of things there are in the world, and you think that, well, perhaps there are objects and events and properties, and uh, there's a rival view, you might assess these views according to various criteria that are often associated with explanatory power, right? How simple are they? How many primitive notions do they involve? You do conceptual analysis to try to flesh out what you mean by these notions and so on. So it's a form of inquiry that has a significant a priori dimension in those senses, right? The reliance on non-empirical considerations. And a metaphysical inference is one uh, that typifies that kind of inquiry. So a metaphysical inference uh, is uh, based on um, either in the form of assumptions or uh, other criteria that we bring to bear in assessing whether an inference is good or not, um, these kinds of non empirical considerations.
1: Okay. Um... So, uh, well, one of the one of the points that you make in the book is that uh, these metaphysical, in terms of the this sort of non reliance on empirical considerations, there's actually a continuum. Right, you know, from little m to big M, uh, you know, metaphysics in terms of this uh, separation from, from, uh, from empirical work in some way. Um, could you say something about that that continuum? I mean, one of the things that I thought of was it reminded me of of um, you know of Quine's web of. B- web of belief, right, where the a priori was really something that just, like, this is the stuff that I'm, you know, just not willing to give up, um, and this other stuff is just more, you know, I'm, 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 I'm more willing to give that up um, in some way. So, can you, can you explain this continuum in terms of the a priori content, you might say, of metaphysical inferences?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really central to the the whole message of the book. The idea that what we call uh, metaphysical inference is something that really admits of degrees. And I think it's interesting, you know, when you think about it historically, uh, you think about the kinds of uh, claims, ontological and other claims that have been labeled metaphysical. Uh, by different historical actors, um, both philosophers and scientists, there's a lot of variation in terms of what counts as uh, metaphysical. You know, if you were a certain kind of logical empiricist, you might think that merely talking about or making claims about various unobservable entities, you know, uh, genes or proteins or uh, electrons and charge, making claims about these sorts of things, things that aren't amenable to detection by the unaided senses, you might say, look, that's a kind of uh, metaphysical discourse, or we're making metaphysical claims when we talk about these things and their properties. Of course, uh, a lot of scientific realists, when they talk about genes and proteins and electrons and their properties. They don't regard this as metaphysical at all. In fact, uh, they think that these are things that the sciences describe, that the sciences have characterized for us very neatly through various forms of empirical investigation and uh, theorizing. And uh, sure, there's metaphysics, but uh, metaphysics concerns things like well, what is the nature, the ultimate nature of causation? Or uh, what are laws of nature exactly, right? Are they regularities? Are they relations between properties? Um, one of the metaphysical topics I'm interested in is natural kinds and scientific kinds. Is the world kind of uh, prefabricated with respect to various kinds of things? Or are the kinds we uh, recognize the world in terms of, are they conventions? You know, all of these sorts of questions, you might say, well, those are metaphysical. But look, uh talk of uh, genes and electrons, that isn't metaphysic at all. That's just what the sciences tell us. And what's interesting about this to me is that when you look at the uh, these different kinds of practices of labeling things that count as metaphysics, what you find are what I would describe as simply different locations along a kind of spectrum of metaphysical inference um, from as you uh, mentioned, very small M, kind of very small metaphysical inferences on uh, one end of the spectrum to what you might call very large M, you know, kind of big metaphysical inferences on the other. And what we find when people make these claims about what's metaphysics and what isn't metaphysics is what they're doing is they're identifying um, parts of the spectrum in which they think that, you know, belief, ontological claims are warranted. And when it gets a little too speculative, when the M becomes a little too big for them, and they say, look, now we're talking about things that we couldn't possibly hope to have knowledge of. We can't really think in terms of warranted claims or warranted belief here. That's often when various different actors will label something as metaphysics. So the idea is that um, we can think of uh, this kind of spectrum um, on the one end, as I said, inferences that are Again, to employ some of the metaphors before, uh, closer to, uh, more constrained by, more informed by scientific empirical investigation. And at the other end of the spectrum, you get to things that are more distantly informed or less constrained uh, by empirical scientific investigation. That's when you're getting into big M territory. You can uh, go all the way and find yourself talking about things and making claims about things that are, in principle... Empirically inaccessible. We might have a discussion about uh, concrete possible worlds and uh, what their nature uh, is. And since concrete possible worlds are causally insulated from our own, if they exist, uh, then you know that's something that is not going to be amenable to any kind of empirical investigation. And so, really, the the question then, I think, becomes the interesting one of of working out how it is that people decide where along this spectrum of metaphysical inference from the very small m to the very large m um, we should draw a line between forms of inquiry where the metaphysical inferences are such that we think that they're good bets for generating knowledge about what there is and what those things are like and domains in which we think well you know the bets aren't good enough. We, we really shouldn't think that we're warranted in making claims about what exists uh, and what those things are like when it gets to a certain point. And I describe this spectrum really in terms of um, different kinds of factors that you could bring to bear. But the most important are two, really. I talk about the idea of empirical vulnerability. That's the idea that uh, a particular claim uh, is... Uh, amenable to uh, or vulnerable to uh, an empirical test. And the second factor is the idea of explanatory power. That is the idea that a particular claim or ontological posit might satisfy the kind of criteria that we commonly associate with good explanations. You know, maybe positing something in your ontology allows you to unify a whole bunch of phenomena uh, that you Uh, wouldn't have been able to unify otherwise, and that that gives it a kind of explanatory power that uh, it wouldn't otherwise have. And I think that these two factors, um, explanatory power and empirical vulnerability taken together um, are what often determine how people judge whether some part of the spectrum of metaphysical inference is knowledge generating uh, or whether it isn't.
1: Okay um, well this that's that was that's very helpful because I mean one of the questions that I did have um, as I was reading was um, uh, it might be helpful here to maybe give an example of a, of a metaphysical inference or, or two but the uh, the question that r- arose for me was uh, since these are inferences you know there there are certain processes that that metaphysicians and or scientists will will go through um are are these individuated at the level of say a science uh or are they uh individuated at the level of of each individual in other words um for any given claim uh where it it Fits on the spectrum in terms of its, you know, the big M to little, the big M to little m, you know, position. Um, that that seems to be something that is going to be determined by each, by each person, rather than particular claims are going to be, you know, at at one end or another end. Could so I was just wondering if you could address that that,
0: you know. Yeah, question absolutely. I, I think that. Um- It's certainly going to be the case that we might all agree um, about how to rank various domains of science with respect to where they would fall on what I'm calling this kind of spectrum of metaphysical inference. Um, You know, there are some uh, activities in the sciences Uh, that are very directly empirical if you're a field scientist and you're collecting information on populations of organisms you head out into the field and you make a count and uh, you know you examine various environmental factors and correlate them with various observations that you're making Uh, it's very directly empirical in the sense that you are going out and making observations and recording them Um, you can imagine now the other end of the spectrum where Uh, Some of our science is uh, really comprised of very sophisticated mathematical modeling where the empirical inputs are really minimal. What we're trying to do is to come up with workable mathematical models uh, for uh, certain basic constraints that we want them to uh, satisfy. You know, a very well-known example of this in the sort of public consciousness, because it's in the newspaper every now and again, um, is theorizing about quantum gravity. When we have uh, string theorists who are uh, part of a physics department and who are uh, working on questions of how we might conceptualize strings so that we could imagine uh, some theory of them or some description of them, um, allowing for uh, things like space and time as emergent um, when we're doing those kinds of things, we're doing something that is uh, very highly mathematical, um, not nearly uh, something that could be described in the way I describe someone doing field work. Um, so I think that we could probably um, all or most of us could come to some kind of agreement as to where things fall relative to one another with respect to the spectrum of metaphysical inference. Uh, we might all agree on a kind of ordering of different branches of science, or even within a particular science, um, different kinds of activities, um, modeling activities, experiments, and so on. We might agree with respect to um, how metaphysical they are with respect to what I'm calling the, the spectrum of metaphysical inference, where I think that interesting differences emerge really is, as you put it, Uh, to be understood at the level of the individual. I think there are fascinating dynamics that go on here when people come to decisions about how they're going to interpret the relevant science, the relevant theory, the relevant models, the relevant experiments, as uh, producing, or not for that matter, um, ontological claims that we can believe. And here, I think, is where something really interesting happens. Uh, It's something that it can really only be described in terms of different people assessing the relative uh, evidential force of and uh, relative uh, potency of factors like empirical vulnerability and explanatory power in different ways. And I think you see this in the sciences. I mean, those of us who you know speak to scientists, especially in Areas that are uh, currently hotbeds of, you know, sort of uh, cutting-edge exploration, you often find that scientists have different attitudes towards uh, the subject material that they're investigating. Some of them have uh, more or less settled ontological commitments. Others aren't yet willing to commit, maybe because empirical vulnerability and explanatory power, um, whatever combination they think is being. Uh, Most conducive to belief. Uh, The relevant levels of those things haven't yet been realized in scientific practice. And it it is interesting. It's always fascinating to me when you find scientists who are engaged in what looks like the same scientific practice on the surface, uh, but you actually find that uh, they have different ontological beliefs when you press a little bit to try to work out what it is that they believe. And I think that this is um, something that is uh, very. Uh, perhaps dramatic when we look at cutting edge fields or when we look at kind of fundamental fields, right? They're, um, when you look at people who are doing cosmology or um, looking at uh, uh, very fundamental aspects of whatever their subject matter is. But uh, I also think that it happens on uh, a more banal, everyday basis in other fields. And if you look at the history of our own field, the history of philosophy of science, you find scientists who had very different attitudes towards what the meanings of their experiments were or what they should commit to given those experiments.
1: Um, so that, that kind of implies, um, and just to kind of follow up, a, a kind of um, a dynamic element to this, you know, where certain uh, metaphysical claims might be on, on the spectrum. I mean, you mentioned string theory, and, and um, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on string theory but i i have heard that one of the big issues about including uh string theorists for example in physics departments is is the fact that it's there's no one knows at least to my to my knowledge how to add any auxiliary hypotheses or make any inferences that are actually testable and so this the uh At once upon a time, maybe a few decades ago, string theory was like you know the thing um and it has lost a bit of its um shine uh because the fact that the way in which it could be tested you know that hasn 't become clear um and then on the other on the other hand we're also inventing new instruments at the same time, so it's not just a matter of, can we think of ways to test this, but also how, you know, we now have a new way to test something that we didn't think we could, were able to test before. So, this this implies some sort of a, that where an inference lies on the spectrum uh is itself going to fluctuate right within each science and will be differing between different sciences as well as between different people? I think
0: that's absolutely right. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the common ways in which people have thought about the relationship between um, the sciences and metaphysics, certainly between what we would now recognize as the modern sciences, that is uh, the sciences after uh, the period of natural, Philosophy, in which we would, you know, I think recognize various aspects of what we call the modern sciences mixed together with uh, what we would now think of as metaphysics, or uh, in some cases theology, and so on. Once you get to the the point in our history at which we uh, kind of distinguish those practices and divide uh, labor, um, I think that there is definitely uh, a sense in which, and there's a common view, um, you can see. Uh, certain kinds of investigations into the world evolving. And that's the dynamical aspect you advert to evolving from, uh, investigations in which, you know, we are really only, uh, to speculate right from the armchair with respect to uh, what these things might be like to finally, ultimately being able to empirically detect them. Of course, some people, I mean, this is something that uh, since you mentioned Quine earlier, um, I should throw him in here. I mean, that's certainly something that he identified as a kind of uh, a marking point or a marker of when philosophical speculation can give way to scientific investigation, when we actually get to that point. And the former, the philosophical speculation is incredibly important. And a lot of philosophers have recognized this point because uh, it provides uh, various Uh, frameworks or concepts for thinking. It explores the space of conceptual possibilities that then scientists can be inspired by and then think of ways of probing empirically, etc. So I think you're absolutely right to suggest that um, the place of a particular ontological posit on the spectrum of metaphysical inference is something that can evolve in time and it really is something that's indexed to our current state of science it's indexed to uh the ways in which we can investigate the world right are certain things detectable are they detectable directly are they detectable only indirectly or highly indirectly if they're not detectable um are they highly unifying or otherwise explanatorily virtuous of things that we can detect? Or uh, is the payoff for positing them something that's a little bit further removed or less impressive? These are all things that can change in time, as you say, as we develop the sciences, as we develop our instrumentation, as we come up with new ways of, of actually probing the target systems that we're interested in. And so I do think that what might count as something that is a little bit too big M for someone to commit to uh, at a certain stage of inquiry might over time become sufficiently smaller such that they're willing to say, yeah, you know what? I'm ready to commit. And I think a a good example of this might just be in the recent news. Uh, A few years ago uh, at the Large Hadron Collider uh, at CERN in Geneva uh, an experiment or a series of experiments were performed uh, that the physicists there ultimately described as a successful detection of the Higgs boson, the Higgs particle, um, which was the last holdout from detection uh, of all of the particles described by the standard model of particle physics, right? Our, our, Uh, A wonderful theory that was kind of finalized in the 1970s that gives us a kind of taxonomy of all of the subatomic particles that constitute everything else. And um, this last particle hadn't yet been detected. It was detected just a few years ago. And I think prior to its detection, there were a lot of really interesting attitudes on the parts of scientists themselves as to uh, what kinds of ontological claims they were willing to make right? A lot of them said, look, the standard model is an incredibly uh, powerful theory. Uh, We have uh, lots of kind of indirect evidence that suggests that there must be a Higgs particle uh, they were willing to commit. Others were more circumspect. Others fell in between. They thought, well, you know, there's probably something Higgs-like, but it might not be exactly what we're expecting. And until we have experiments that are able to shed light on what the properties of this thing might be, um, you know, we should really suspend judgment. There were a whole host of attitudes. Uh, What's fascinating about this particular example is that after the detection and after the data was analyzed and the announcement was made, I think this variety of epistemic attitudes, this variety of different kinds of ontological commitment, really just collapsed. I mean, everyone then said, yep, there's a Higgs particle, and it has the properties that we thought it would have. Um, and that's, I think, a really nice example of exactly the kind of dynamism that you were uh, mentioning a moment ago.
1: Okay, good. That's, a, that's actually a really good example because, um, you know, in many in the sort of standard debate in, in philosophy between realism... And various types of well, various types of realism, various types of anti-realism, or deflationary views. Uh, that line is, you know, again, traditionally kind of drawn in terms of what's observable and what's not observable. And 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 the Higgs boson, of course, would be ju- usually classified as as totally unobservable by most by most accounts. Um, and the idea that. Uh, that people's or science's uh, attitudes about the Higgs boson, you know, sort of shifts, you know, with what was claimed to be, you know, empirical uh, evidence of, you know, detection of the Higgs boson actually kind of leaves the philosophical uh, debate uh, in a, in, in, behind in the sense that for those who are anti-realists – uh they didn't they still didn't you know there's still no reason to commit to the Higgs boson uh, because they have on and now I'm going to your account, they would have a different epistemic stance from those you know philosophers and apparently the most of the scientific community uh, that they have towards. Uh, what we are entitled to be committed to because of their epistemic stances. So, this concept of an epistemic stance plays a very important role in your in your account of of scientific ontology. So, maybe at this point is a, a a good opportunity to, to say what is an epistemic stance and how do they explain these differences in positions on scientific ontology.
0: Sure. So one of the things that I found really puzzling uh, and yet, uh, you know, kind of uh, fascinating, I wanted to get to the bottom of it, uh, was the idea that different people, people whose uh, descriptions uh, of how they interpret the scientific evidence uh, seem to have a kind of cogency or coherency. Um, would nonetheless come to radically different conclusions with respect to how we should interpret our best science, and uh, I was fascinated by this uh, initially because uh, these are smart people. Right, they're not people who I take to be uh, misreading the evidence or ignorant of the evidence. Right, they're people who are starting, for the most part, with the same right, uh, the same scientific descriptions, and yet they come to very different conclusions about what uh, ontological claims are licensed by that science. And so I really wanted to uh, probe the depths of that question to understand how it is that people come to have these different views, in part motivated by the fact that in some of the literature, you see this in debates between realists and anti-realists, you sometimes find that uh, people argue in ways that on the surface seemed implausible to me. Uh, they would say things like, look, if you look at the evidence, you have to be a realist. Right? There's no choice but to be a realist. If you look at the results of the experiments at CERN, you really have to believe in the existence of the Higgs boson. You should be willing to sign your name to a petition that says, you know, we, the, you know, signed are, uh, um, all believe in the existence of this uh, subatomic particle. And it seemed to me that that couldn't be That couldn't be the case. And the reason, as I thought about it more and more, it seemed that it couldn't be the case really stems from this idea that uh, judgments about how much empirical vulnerability and how much explanatory power weigh on the warrant that we get when we make these kinds of metaphysical inferences uh, are really, to an amazing extent, in the eye of the beholder it's very difficult. And when you think about it in some detail, I think it becomes impossible to imagine that there is an algorithm that will tell you. And I think scientists will tell you this, and certainly philosophers are well aware of this. There isn't an algorithm that will tell you when, right, when the evidence is of a certain sort, um, you should make an ontological commitment. Uh, There's always some fuzziness with respect to when you take factors like empirical vulnerability and explanatory power to be powerful enough to actually push you in the direction of that kind of uh, commitment. And so I think an epistemic stance, uh, it's really a generalization of the notion of a stance, which I think we have a a kind of analogy for in everyday language. We think of a, a stance as a kind of um, orientation or uh, a posture or an attitude that we might take towards something um, an epistemic stance as I characterize it is uh, a, a cluster of of attitudes of um, of orientations of um, claims uh, uh, not claims about the world but um, ways of thinking about claims about the world um, that are relevant to the formulation of knowledge. So they're, they're epistemic because they're relevant to formulating knowledge claims, but they're not propositional, um, at least not in the first instance and not primarily, right? They're not claims about the world. Instead, what they are, are um, reflecting different assessments of factors like empirical vulnerability and explanatory power. Um, questions of how we assess what assess what we might call the risk associated with any particular uh, ontological claim or posit. And I think the easiest way to see what an epistemic stance is, is to actually just think about um, some examples of epistemic stances. And when you start to think about examples, you very quickly see how uh, different philosophers who have disputed Ontological claims in the sciences, right? Ones who want to restrict our interpretation of scientific knowledge to uh, observable things, Um, those who want to say, yeah, we can have knowledge of observables, but we could also extend scientific knowledge to various unobservable things, all the way through to some people who, in the metaphysics of science, say, you know, not only can we uh, sign up to ontological claims that are made by scientists or uh, in scientific theories, but you know we also have license to believe in things like uh, modal properties, like dispositions, or um, certain kinds of structures described by, uh, say, symmetry groups in uh, modern physics. They end up making claims that uh, are that seem very metaphysical. Um, and yet they think that all of these things are, are licensed by science. And it seemed to me that as soon as you start to identify some examples of what I'm calling epistemic stances, uh, you can see what's motivating at some kind of deep level the different claims that these different people are making.
1: Okay, so um, one of the things that you do talk about um, uh, when you when you get, into the weeds about stances is you know as you mentioned one of the what they they are bundles sort of of you know, various attitudes and and claims about what one can say um and one of the questions that i had was was how how rational are they i mean there's there's a further question about you do you do uh, talk about uh, how different stances can both sort of be rational um, it's not like one is right or one is wrong um, but kind of prior to that question um, I, I just was worried a bit about the role of you know personal factors you know feelings character um, because, the stances are what sort of ground our various risk assessments, you know, in relation to various uh, metaphysical claims, and um, you know, risk assessment itself, of course, is is very much affected by or grounded by people's, you know, own sense of vulnerability, the stakes that they are that are involved. Um, and you don't you you mention certain things like um, you know certain feelings of unease, uh, but you don't really go into too much uh, about the the possibility of you know any sort of more emotional or just simply non rational factors in. Uh, in stances. So, I was just wondering what, what you think about these, what, what, we, what philosophers at least would generally classify as non-rational aspects uh, of how people do risk assessment and therefore which epistemic stances they adopt. Um, how rational should we think that stances are from that perspective?
0: Mm. That's a great question. And I think you've put your finger on one of the things that's likely to be, to use your words from earlier, uh, provocative about the book, uh, which is that I do take uh, this talk of stances to really shine a light on uh, precisely the sort of thing that you've just indicated, things that are uh, motivational uh, in the way people formulate beliefs that uh when we as philosophers or scientists want to talk about what's rational in forming beliefs, uh, might otherwise like to exclude, right? And I think part of this uh, really just stems from the idea that epistemic stances are born of uh, of uh, commitments that really for us are are quite deep commitments. I mean, you can, I think, think of the kinds of stance commitments or adoptions that people make really as a kind of um, existential fact about them. I think it is really saying something about, you know, the the degrees or levels at which uh, someone is willing to make a commitment as being something uh, very personal. And it's not as though it can't be shared with others who are like-minded in this way. But I do think that it stems from something uh, pretty deep. So, you know, let me... Maybe I said a moment ago that the best way to understand uh, what stances are is to maybe think about some examples. And then, of course, I didn't give any examples. So uh, (laughs) let me actually, you know, just give a couple because I think it might give a sense of uh, how um, these factors uh, can be something that we would describe in these sort of existential terms. Right. So I talk about in the book. I talk in particular about three stances, and I don't uh, talk about others, not because I don't believe that there are any others, but I think these are three that uh, are at least really operative in the way that people end up making uh, ontological claims or deciding on how they're going to interpret scientific theories. So uh, these clusters of uh, attitudes, these orientations, these uh, postures, I think, are often associated with uh, what I would call epistemic policies, So um, what I call the deflationary stance is one in which uh, you might think as an epistemic policy uh, that you're just going to reject traditional philosophical, and by that I really mean realist here, understandings of scientific ontology, right? You're going to reject the kinds of analyses of truth and reference in terms of which uh, these kinds of understandings are explicated, Right. And you see this in the work of various people. You know, Arthur Fine comes to mind, where he thinks that, you know, if as a realist you have to thump the table and say that things really exist, by which you probably mean something like the correspondence theory of truth, and then you have to articulate what that is, and you have to have a robust theory of reference and what that is, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in order to substantiate your claim. That something exists in your realist way, you're really having to appeal to the truth of philosophical beyond what it means to make an ontological claim. And so someone who adopts that kind of attitude is really going to be um, deflationary about what I would describe as ontology just taken at face value, right, in a kind of correspondence sense. The the main dynamic in uh, I think deciding where on the spectrum of metaphysical inference you might think is a good place to draw a line between things that you might believe and things that you might want to suspend belief about is really informed by a contrast between what I call the the um, epistemic sorry the empiricist stance and the metaphysical stance and they're kind of diametrically opposed. The empiricist stance is one that um, suggests that we should really just reject demands for explanation in terms of things that underlie the observable. We shouldn't take those kinds of uh, demands seriously in terms of theorizing about unobservable things. Whereas the metaphysical stance is one that actually accepts those kinds of demands for explanation uh, really uh, exhorts us to um, theorize about the unobservable um, to uh, provide those kinds of explanations. And I think here you see all of the sorts of things that Uh, you mentioned a moment ago, you know, feelings of unease, feelings of inspiration, right? Feelings of um, thinking that we might be able to get somewhere. Um, If you are drawn towards the empiricist stance, you might really doubt the value of having explanations of things that you can detect very well with your senses in terms of of increasingly arcane uh, and highly theoretical constructs. Uh, you might really start to wonder whether any of that is actually important, right? In just the same way that the instrumentalists were not enemies of science, they just thought that a cash value of science was make predictions that would allow us to um, act in the world, right? Um, That might be what's most important to you. And that might have an effect on how you assess the risk associated with various kinds of ontological claims. On the other hand, if you thirst for the underlying explanation, right, if it's really important to you, if it's something that you think is crucial to having a proper understanding of or knowledge of the world, then that too may have an impact on how you draw lines between domains of theorizing in which you think belief is possible and ones in which you don't. So uh, I'm not sure whether I've gotten around to your question, Um, but, um, But hopefully that gives a sense of how the kinds of things that we actually value and the kinds of things that we aspire to will actually be relevant to how we assess factors like empirical vulnerability and explanatory power.
1: Okay um well I mean there's a number of you know issues that I mean we could we could talk for quite a long time and actually we are we're we're running out of time so let me let me just you know there's there's a fascinating discussion in the book on 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 perspectivalism and uh you know whether uh we can have some sort of non-perspectival ontological knowledge uh or there is no non-perspectival ontological facts i don't unfortunately i don't think we're going to get to that um but i will leave that for for readers to to read those parts as well um so let me just last sort of question about the book um uh, one of the things you do do again at the end with the, with this idea of stances is that they are choices and that's the voluntarist epistemology um, that you're integrated in, into your account. Um, and you argue that uh, as long as they are internally coherent, uh, that makes them count as rational. And and you do discuss the idea that for many, for at least some people, this might, be a little bit too weak a sense of rationality to particularly given the fact that we're talking about ontology right um and if ontology is grounded on epistemic stances then it's certainly in your favor to argue that even if you have different stances they can both count as rational um, even if they are totally opposed to each other um so can you can you quickly sort of say a bit about this this element of the the voluntarism and the rationality of of stances epistemic stances
0: yes Yes, I can. And this really does, I think, uh, bring us back to the part of your last question, which I didn't answer. Uh, And that has to do with the rationality of stances. Uh, It certainly isn't a foregone conclusion that all stances that one might adopt are going to be rational. I think that if we have too weak a conception of what rationality means in this context, uh, then we really aren't going to be doing justice to the idea of scientific ontology as a meaningful Uh, project in which to engage. Uh, But I do think that uh, the conception of rationality that's at issue here uh, is going to be very weak. And this really, in part, uh, to be quick, it really stems from, I think, the uh, realization that trying to come up with uh, a foundation, um, or as I described it earlier, an algorithm or uh, a set of necessary and sufficient conditions that would allow you to determine how correctly to weigh the sometimes competing factors of empirical vulnerability and explanatory power. Sometimes they pull in the opposite direction, thinking that there could be a rule that would allow you to plug in the current state of any particular scientific investigation and generate the correct rational answer as to what you should believe with respect to your ontological commitments, um, that that just isn't going to work. And and once you uh, see that, uh, and that's something that I try to bring people uh, to in the book, you, I think, uh, should see that there are different ways of interpreting uh, the evidence of the sciences and that they should meet certain minimal constraints. That's what prevents it from being an anything goes kind of view. Um, These uh, constraints are in part logical. Right, the adopting a stance shouldn't involve any sort of inconsistency uh, or uh, probabilistic incoherence. Uh, it's in part pragmatic. Right, this is a phrase used by uh, Bas van Fraassen. Uh, it is um, the idea that the stances you adopt should not encourage self-sabotage by one's own lights. That is, you shouldn't end up holding beliefs that are obviously uh, problematic or that don't actually mesh well with the other parts of your stance. So I think they're both logical and pragmatic constraints on what will count as rationality um, that will allow us to argue about them and will allow us to assess them and will allow people holding different stances to engage in serious conversations about whether they should be holding the stances they're holding and whether they might not rather want to change their minds. So I think that all of these kinds of discussions are, are possible, but so long as these kinds of basic constraints are met, I really don't think that there's anything further that we can say that would exclude a particular stance on the basis of, uh, it's, uh, being rational or not. I think once these basic constraints are met, it turns out to be a coherent view and there really isn't anything more to be said other than as, uh, a feature of the way one with one stance interprets the evidence, this is what one comes to believe.
1: Very good. Well, um, we are out of time. So uh, I just want to end by thanking you for, for taking the time to introduce the main, at least some of the main themes in your book to, to our audience. And I wish you luck uh, with your uh, upcoming research. You've been listening to my interview with Anjan Chakravarti, A.Pinyani Foundation Chair and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Miami. We've been talking about his new book, Scientific Ontology, Integrating Naturalized Metaphysics and Voluntarist Epistemology, which is just out from Oxford University Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you again for listening.